What kind of year has it been for you? I want to take this Sunday to kind of look back and say, how do we look back at a year or, or even longer than a year through the lens of God's faithfulness to us? And the next Sunday, we're going to kind of take the opposite view. How do we look forward through the lens of God's faithfulness? So it's a little miniature two-part sermon series here on, on looking back and looking forward. So I want you to think about what are some things that have happened this past year? It's been a long year. A lot of things go on. Sometimes it's easy to forget some of the things that went on. And, you know, for some of you, looking back over this past year is kind of like a scene from Jurassic Park. Do you remember that scene where the Tyrannosaurus is chasing the Jeep? I think it's a Jeep. And the driver goes through and, and he looks in the rearview mirror and he sees the Tyrannosaurus right there. It's like, ah, maybe that was your year. Maybe when you look back over it, you think, I don't want to see that. I, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to think about it. I'm just so ready to start a new year and move on. Maybe you had loss or hardship. Maybe you're sitting here today because of the year that you've had, and you're thinking, I don't even know why I want to be here. Why should I follow God at all? Why should I trust him? Why should I read my Bible? Why should I do any of this stuff after the year that I have had? Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're looking back over a wonderful year. And you see things that God has done in your life, maybe a new job, a new relationship, just some wonderful blessings, maybe just some situations that were tough, but he delivered you through. And you look back and that's what you see. And the truth is, every time we gather together, I think it's one of the interesting things of being the church. We all come with different experiences. And so when we gather together, we want to be sensitive to the hurting. We want to rejoice with those who rejoice. But the truth is, probably most of us are somewhere in between, right? Maybe some really hard times throughout the year. Maybe some joys as well. So what I want to do this morning is say, kind of take these two extremes and say, how do we look back on difficulty? When we're struggling and we're questioning, what's the lens through which we should look at those situations? And then I want to say, how should we look back on joy and, and victory and just blessings from God? So let's start with Psalm 77 and look at what it means to look back in difficulty. So let's start in Psalm 77. I want to read for you the first nine verses. And what I want you to do is follow along and get a picture in your head or an idea in your head of what is going on for the author of this psalm. What would be true about his life? Are things going well? Are they going poorly? What's the general situation that's going on? Psalm 77, starting in verse 1. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he, in anger, withheld his compassion? Is the author of this psalm going through good times or bad? It's pretty obvious, right? He's going through some really bad times. Really 
really bad times. And maybe you can identify with some of the questions he's asking. In case you didn't catch it, he's really saying, I cried out to God for an answer and I didn't get one. I looked for comfort, God, and it wasn't there. Have you had those times in your life? You say, wait a minute, Pastor, I followed all the right steps. I read my Bible. I prayed. And where's this Christian happiness that we talk about? Where's this joy? Because I'm not feeling it right now. And maybe that's the situation you're in today. Maybe you're crying out to God and you're saying, God, I, I need some perspective here. And you're not hearing any answers right now. Well, of course, it doesn't stop there. Look at verses 10 through 12. Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. What is the author doing? He's making a choice. He's saying, here's my situation, and it's cloudy, and it's murky, and it's, it's full of trouble and distress, and I'm looking for answers for this situation, and I'm not getting them. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to quit looking in this situation. I'm making a choice. I'm going to look into history. He says, I'm going to remember what God has done. Outside of this situation, I'm going to look at something I know to be true beyond any shadow of a doubt. The years when God did powerful things for his people. The author's looking for perspective. And so he looks at the past faithfulness of God. So let's look at what he comes up with. Verses 13 and 14. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. And he just started with two general truths. So he looks back at God's past faithfulness. And again, remember, this is a guy questioning what God's doing right now. But he looks back and he says, God, I know some things about you from your history of dealing with your people. You are holy. That means you are good. You are righteous. You do the right things. You have a plan. The author's not seeing it right now, but he looks back and he says, I know it to be true. You are holy. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and God, you have done great things. You deliver people. You've done miraculous things in how you've delivered people. You've done powerful things. Now think about the perspective he's gaining on his situation. When we're stuck looking at desperation or trouble, we start questioning God and we say, God, are you able? Are you capable? Do you love me? Do you want to fix this? And we ask all these questions. But if we can have a bigger perspective of God's past faithfulness, we can start answering some of those questions. We say, God, you are good. I don't know where that goodness is right now. I don't see it at work right now, but I know you are good. So I'm going to hold on to that. And then he says, and I know you work. I know you work on behalf of your people. You are a God that delivers people. I don't see it right now, but I'm going to examine my present circumstance through that lens of your past faithfulness. And then he gets even more specific in verse 15. Let's look at 15 through 20. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The water saw you, God. The water saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. 
seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now, the author is recalling a specific event from the Israelites' history. What is it? The crossing of the Red Sea. The Exodus. If, if you're not familiar with the story, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. They couldn't get out of the situation. God came to them and said, look, you're my people. I'm rescuing you. I'm going to do something you could never do for yourself. And through many miracles, he brings them out of Egypt, and then he brings them to the worst possible spot, stuck between Pharaoh's army and this impassable sea. And the beauty of the story is that God splits the water, again rescues them in a way they could never have done themselves. They walk across the sea on dry land, the waters close back over Pharaoh's army, and they are saved. Throughout the Old Testament, and I've said this before, throughout the Old Testament, when they want to look at how God saves, when they want to look at their salvation story, they always look to the Exodus. That was the time that God saved his people, brought them from slavery into his land, his promises, and they were his people. Now think about the perspective this brings. Here is this guy, and I I assume This says it's of Asaph, which probably means that it was written by Asaph. I assume that Asaph isn't just writing this about a personal situation. This is probably a national situation in Israel. But either way, it's a hopeless, desperate situation. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't see God's work. He doesn't see God's goodness. He doesn't see God's love. So what does he do? He looks beyond the situation. He says, God, you are a God who saves people. I know you can do it. I know you have, and I know you will, no matter what's going to happen. How would that change our perspective? How would it change our perspective? Now, again, in the Old Testament, people looked to the greatest act of salvation they could possibly think of that God had done, and they looked to the crossing of the Red Sea or the Exodus in general. What do we have to look to today? If we want to think about the greatest act of God saving us, the thing that we can hold on to that no situation can ever change, what do we look to? The cross. Now, we can look to the Old Testament. There's nothing wrong with that. We do serve a God who saved people through the Red Sea. We do serve a God, as we talked about in the first Samuel class this morning, that raises up kings and delivers his people. That is the God that we serve. But how much greater to look to the cross when we're struggling in doubt and we need perspective on maybe a difficult year, to say, God, you are a God that sent your son to die on the cross in my place. So in those moments that you're questioning God's love, and you're going to have them. And, and I, I think as Christians, sometimes we've gotten to this point of saying, well, I'm a bad Christian if I'm questioning God's love. If I have any doubts, I'm not a good Christian. I would say the Psalms say otherwise. The question is not whether or not we have doubts. It's what do we do with the doubts? Do we take the doubts and say, God, I have doubts. I can't understand you. I don't know what you're doing, so I'm going to go somewhere else and try to figure this out. That's a problem. Or do we take the doubts to God and say, God, I have doubts. Show me. Teach me. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to watch for what you're going to do. I'm going to trust in your faithfulness. That's what we're called to do. We need to remember God's past faithfulness. And especially look to the cross and say, if God would give his son for us, don't you think he has a plan in these difficult situations? There's a lot of hope. You know, as I thought about these sermons, I thought, what about us as a church? 
Some of you throughout this year have made some very difficult transitions. I've had a chance to sit and talk with many of you, and and many of you have left churches that you've loved and you were at for a very long time, and I know the difficulty that comes with that. I know the heartache. I, I know the rejoicing in what God had done, and yet the struggle and the way things are going. And you may be wondering, where is God in this? And my answer to you is, I don't know exactly. I don't know what his plan is for that church. And, and my heart breaks, to be very honest with you, my heart breaks for some of the churches you come from. I'm not here saying, oh, well, this is great, they've come here. This is wonderful, we're growing. I, I actually look at it and say, the kingdom's not growing because these good places are suffering and they're struggling and they're God's people just as much as we are. And so maybe you're here and you're struggling with that, but I want you to look to the cross. Say, we have a God who saves God's not done with you. God's not done with that church. God's not done. And he is a God who powerfully works to save. Some of you have faced enormous loss this year. Loved ones have passed away. Maybe relationships have been broken. God's not done. Hold on to a God who is holy and who loves you and who has saved you and say, I will trust in that salvation. I will trust that one day I will see it, even if I'm not seeing it right now in this situation. Get a bigger perspective on what is going on. The author of Psalm 77 looked at what God had done. And he had a historical reference to look to. He knew something about God and he could lean on that. Now, maybe you're here and you're saying, I've actually had a pretty good year. I've had a lot of great things going on. Do we still need a proper perspective to look back on good things? And my answer to that is absolutely. Because otherwise, we might be tempted to look back on something good and say, look at what I did. Man, I had a great year. Look at the sales I had. Look at the, the things that I was able to do. Look at how my family has grown. I could look back as a church and say, wow, look at what I did. Man, our church is just growing like crazy. And we need to stop ourselves there and say, wait a minute, I need to look at this through the lens of God's faithfulness. So open up to Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is a very interesting psalm. We're not going to look at all of it. But in Psalm 18, you probably will have right underneath the, uh, the, the bold psalm number there, Psalm 18, you'll have a little smaller font, or mine it's italics, and it says this, For the director of music, of David, the servant of the Lord, he sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, and then it goes into the psalm. Now, I don't know if you know this, but this is important to know. Those things there are part of Scripture. Those little, when it's under the psalm and it says, you know, for the music director or something like that, those were part of the original inspired text of scripture. That was not added by a translator. When you get into the New Testament, or actually other places in the Old Testament, and you see these subject headings, that's, those were added later. Those are just to help us find things, okay? They're not part of the inspired word, but this is. So this helps us to say, I know where this psalm comes from. I know what the situation was that it was used in. And we don't always have that. So think about this for a second. This is a song, according to that text, that David sang when Saul, his greatest enemy, was defeated. This psalm appears one other time in Scripture. 
It appears in 2 Samuel. It appears in 2 Samuel chapter 2, or 22, excuse me, after David's son Absalom, who had risen up against him, had taken over the kingdom, kicked out David. His own son had kicked him off the throne and done horrific things that we won't go into right now. Chased him out of the city. And God brings David back. And through a series of events, Absalom is overthrown and killed in battle, which tears his father's heart out. But at the same time, he is restored to the throne. And in 2 Samuel 22, David sings this same song. Now, I think we have an interesting perspective here. This is a psalm or a song that David would sing as a response to something amazing that God had done. I think that's pretty neat. Wouldn't that be neat for us to have a song or, or a, especially a psalm, a passage of scripture that when God did something, we would call that to mind and just worship him for it and give all the credit back to him instead of taking any of it ourselves? Now, let's just deal with it in the context of David's relationship with Saul. Because as far as I know, that's the first situation that David sang this song. If you know the story of David and Saul, you understand that David was appointed king as a very young boy, young teenager probably. And on the throne at that time was Saul, the first king of Israel. And Saul was not a good king. Saul was very selfish. He was very paranoid. He was very power hungry. He would do anything he could to maintain his power. He was, as we talked about in in the first Samuel class this morning, he was very pragmatic. Whatever it takes to get the result at that moment that he needed to get, that's what he would do. If being faithful to God got him the result, great. If being unfaithful to God got him the result, that's fine too. He didn't care. Whatever it took. David gets anointed as king, and for 15 years, David is not recognized as the king of Israel. 15 years. For 15 years, he serves. Not only does he serve, he serves Saul. The king that God has replaced with David, David serves Saul. For 15 years, not only does he serve Saul, but eventually, Saul keeps trying to kill him. Over and over and over. And David has to run into the wilderness. He has to flee. He lives in mountains and in caves. He even has to live among his enemies for a period of time so that he can survive. 15 years of running, knowing he is the king, knowing that Saul is not. And you know what's really interesting? On two different occasions, David has the opportunity to end Saul's life. And what does he do? He doesn't do it. Because he says, no, God chose him as the king at some point. If God wants to make me the king, then that's God's job to make it happen. It is not my victory to claim. I will trust in the Lord's timing. Man, I wonder if we would have that kind of faith. To say, I know what God wants to happen, but I'm going to trust God's timing for it to take place. For 15 years, David trusted in God. Now, eventually, Saul is killed in battle. And David refused to kill Saul, but it happens. He doesn't do it. It happens. In fact, Saul ends up killing himself because he realizes that he is lost and he can't retain his glory. He can't retain his power and he's done for. And he takes his own life. And so David is able to become king. And David's response to that situation of seeing the fulfillment of God's plan in God's timing, in God's way, this great victory, his response is this psalm. So let's dig into it. Look at verses 1 through 5. I love you, Lord, my strength. 
Man, what a good start. How many of us would want to say, oh, God, finally. (laughs) It's about time, Lord. 15 years I've been running. 15 years I've been faithful. Finally, Lord. Or how many of us would want to say, finally, I got what I wanted. I accomplished it. But instead, he looks straight to God and he gives God all the credit. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I have been saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. Look at what he's saying really very opposite from the last psalm. He's saying, God, I cried out to you and you answered and you delivered. And maybe you're able to look back on this year and that's what you see. Yeah, there were tough times, but man, God has done some powerful things. I have seen the Lord's deliverance. Are you giving him the credit for that today? Are you giving him the credit for that as we walk to the end of the year? Are you looking back and saying, Lord, you have been my rock. Look at verses 6 through 10. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The Lord trembled and quaked. The foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his breath or from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. These are all images that describe the majesty and the power of God. And David's looking back and he's saying, God, you have worked in some powerful, powerful ways. David knows something about God. He knows something about his faithfulness. He knows something about his power. And he's able to take that and apply it to the situation and say, God, I've seen that at work here and I give you all the credit for it. I'm not going to take any for myself. But then he goes on, verses 11 through 19. He made the darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced. With hailstones and bolts of lightning, the Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. The valleys of the seas were exposed and the fountains of the earth laid bare. At your rebuke, Lord, at the blast of your breath from your nostrils. Now, let's just stop there for a second. Do you hear the same language from the last psalm? Do you see some of the same things being called to mind? What is David referring to here? He's referring to the crossing of the Red Sea. Did you catch it? It's a little veil. It's kind of shrouded in a lot of poetic language. But let's look at this. He says, the valleys, verse 15, the valleys of the sea were exposed. The foundations of the earth were laid bare. At your rebuke, Lord, at the the blast of the breath from your nostrils. Now, that's a very strange way of speaking. If I was to translate that into kind of modern English, I would say, God, you sneezed. But I don't think that's exactly what he's talking about. And what do you say when God sneezes? Do you say, God bless you? I don't know how that works. But that phrase, as odd as it is to us, it would have immediately called something to mind for the people that were hearing it. 
Because that's the same phrase in Exodus 15.8 that Moses used when he sang a song as soon as they had crossed the Red Sea. He said, God, it was by the blast of the breath from your nostrils that you cleared the Red Sea. And he's giving God all the credit. And David is looking at this present circumstance, this present victory of being delivered from Saul, and he's tying it back to God's past faithfulness. And say, God, you're doing the same thing today that you did back then. Praise be to the God who saves. Let's go on. Verse 16. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. David is looking at the victories that he's experienced. And he first gives God all the credit. And he's able to do that because he knows something about God. He knows that God is a God who saves. So when salvation comes in a situation in his life, he doesn't step back and say, wow, look at what I've done. Look at how great that was that I ran from Saul and that I wasn't willing to do this, but I won that battle and Saul took his, wow, look how great I am. He turns it right around and he says, God, of course you did this because you're a God that saves. It's what you do. So you get all the credit. May I suggest that as modern believers, we've lost our memories a bit. We've become very short-sighted. We're so caught up in the moment and saying, God, what are you doing right now? How are you going to work right now? What are you leading me in right now? How can I be faithful to you right now? Or how are you going to fix this situation right now? And we need to step back and say, God, you're much bigger than just right now. God's much bigger than the situations you're in right now. God's much bigger than the situations you've been going in, whether good or bad. The situations you've been going through throughout this year, God is much bigger than that. And we need to have a perspective of God's movement throughout all of history. And especially to see things through the lens of the cross. Say, God sent his son to die for me and to die for others, that we might be saved and be restored to him. Of course, he will deliver us from situations. Whether we're seeing it right now or we have seen it, either way we can point to the cross and say, God, I will give you all the glory and I will keep on trusting you. I hope that you can look at this past year through the lens of the cross, whether good or bad. In Acts chapter 2, the early church would gather together. And there's this beautiful passage of the things they would do and, and what characterized their meetings. And I want to suggest that what they were doing was fueling and enriching and feeding upon this perspective of looking at everything through the cross of Jesus Christ. And I see that in this verse right here, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They, this is talking about all the Christians, the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. What was the apostles' teaching? What was their number one teaching? What did the apostles have that they could pass on to the early church that they were uniquely qualified for? The teachings of Jesus. The stories of Jesus. The account of Jesus' life, especially his death, burial, and resurrection. The apostles were constantly teaching the people about Jesus Christ. But I would suggest they did more than that. Because if you look at how Jesus taught, 
He always took what he was doing and put it in the context of what God had been doing all along. So I'm sure that when the apostles taught about Jesus, they did exactly what Jesus had taught them to do. They said, let's look at God's past faithfulness and let me help you to understand how Jesus fits into this. As Christians today, it's become very popular to say, well, I'm a New Testament believer. I don't need the Old Testament. Oh my goodness, yes, we do. We need the history. We need the the character and nature of God played out over all of these years. And then we need to see the cross in light of that because it gets so much bigger. It's a completion, a, a, a culmination of everything God has done. And then we apply that to our situation and we say, that's the God that's with me now. A God who is powerful to save, who crosses Red Seas, who sends his son to die on the cross for me who raises people from the dead, who promises eternal life to all who believe. That's the God that we serve. And then you look at this early church. They devoted themselves to that teaching and to the fellowship. We often talk about fellowship like let's have a meal. We'll just get together. You know, We even call that our fellowship hall down at the other end of the building. And it's sort of like whenever Christians get together and they eat some food, it's fellowship. But it's more than that. Fellowship was what happened when they got together to dwell and to think about the presence of God in their midst, to focus on his word, to share the stories of his faithfulness, to pray with and for one another. That was fellowship. Just happening to be together and having a good time, well, that was fun. That wasn't really the essence of fellowship. They were sharing their lives together as they followed the Lord. And a big part of that was the breaking of bread, which we're pretty certain was an allusion to or an indication of sharing the Lord's Supper together, which again was a way of remembering the cross of Jesus Christ, and to prayer, depending on God together. So the early church was infused with this perspective of, of looking at everything through the character and nature and actions of God, especially as he saved people. How has God been faithful to you this year? Even in the difficulties, if you can, if you can look back, do you see how God has rescued you through those? How he has taught you? Maybe you're in a situation you haven't seen the outcome yet. How are you trusting in the God who saves? How are you focusing on his faithfulness and refusing to be led astray to anything else? You know, God has been faithful to this church. Some of you may not realize that this, but this church has been existence or in existence for 163 years. That's a lot of faithfulness. Now, yes, there's been a lot of ups and downs, as you can imagine, over 163 years. But this church is still here. In a time when churches around the country are closing their doors at an alarming rate, God has been faithful to Orchard Community Church, Ladder Road Baptist Church, Andrew Street Baptist Church, Oh, man, what was it before that? First German Baptist Church of Rochester, I think was the original name. What an amazing testimony to God's faithfulness. And you know, as I look past over this, or look back over this year, I see a lot of you have come in this year, and I rejoice. God has brought us some really neat people. And one of my prayers when I started as a pastor here was, God, raise up faithful people for the Lord. 
people that will come in and get involved and dig in and help us to share the gospel with this lost world. And God has done that. He's raised up people in the church as they have grown in their faith. He's raised up others as they have come into the church with just a a passion and an excitement and a depth to their relationship with Christ. And we look to Christ who saves so that we can point others to Christ who can save them. Many new people have come in. God has blessed us financially. I spoke earlier about this gift, but even without the gift, God has just done amazing things. I think this is the first year that we've been able to look at our budget and say we we met our budget. We actually met it. We have a bit of a surplus. We were able to go above and beyond. Now, look, as a church, and you need to know my understanding as a pastor, whatever God brings, that's what we use, period. I'm not trying to grow a budget. I'm not. Tr- we're not trying to get wealthy by any shape or, or, or form. But when God blesses financially, often through your giving, we're able to use that for ministry. And so we just praise God for that faithfulness. We've had a lot of baptisms this year. Have you noticed that? <laughs> I've been wet a lot this year. <laughs> and that's wonderful. I think over the past year, we've had eight or nine baptisms. We have two, three more, I believe, scheduled for January or sometime in there. What a powerful thing to see people stepping up and saying, yes, I want to make a public testimony of my faith for Jesus Christ. That's God's faithfulness. That's trusting in a God who is great and a God who saves. Sunday school has grown. You know, when I started here, three and a half years ago, we had one Sunday school class. The church had gone through some tough pastoral transitions, and really the adult Sunday school class was dwindling to about four or five people, six people maybe on a Sunday. We are now starting our third adult Sunday school class. We have, I think, roughly 60 people on a given Sunday involved in Sunday school, roughly. That's pretty impressive. Our children's Sunday schools have grown and doubled, and we're trying to pack out the space and find the space to put all these kids. I say that not because I want to grow a program, but to me, when somebody moves from just attending service to going to Sunday school or a small group Bible study, in any way, shape, or form, they're going deeper in their faith. That's the kind of growth I look for. I want to see people growing in their faith. God has been good this year. And I want to celebrate that. I want to thank him for his faithfulness. I want to say, God, you are a God who saves, and we've seen that at work in this body of believers. And next week, we're going to look at some things as we look forward to the new year, some challenges, but how we take that faithfulness and apply it and walk forward in that faithfulness. So I'll end with the question I asked you at the beginning. What are you facing this? Or what, what did God do in your life this year? What were the good times? What were the bad times? And I hope this morning I've given you a grid, a perspective through which to analyze those things. And maybe you're here and you can say, I know God saves because I've seen it. I know God is good because I saw it this year. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I don't see the goodness. I don't see the salvation. But I will trust in the God who brings salvation because I know that's the God he is. Whether through joy or sorrow and hardships, we can still trust in a faithful God who saves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel, born among us to be with us, to teach us, to show us your character, your nature, so foreign to this culture and this world that we live in. And yet you came to point us to you.
And then your son went to that cross in our place. That was our punishment to bear. The blame was ours to take. And yet he took it upon himself. The price for all of our sins. So that all who believe might be restored to right relationship with you. You are a God who saves. And I pray if there's anyone here that is struggling, questioning, may they hold on to that fact that unmistakable, unchangeable, historical fact, you are a God who saves. And God, we may not see it in our situations right now, but we will hold on with everything within us and say, God, I will trust in your salvation. I will trust in your deliverance. Whether this side of heaven or on the other side of heaven, I believe I will see it. And I will give you all the glory, no matter what. Thank you, Father, for being a God who saves. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.